Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the book of Micah. This lesson was presented by Mr. Lawrence Jeffrey on March 21st, 2021, during Sunday School. The lesson's title is The Corruption of the People and discusses Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Last week, we started Micah 4, and the section that we're in is one of my favorite in all of Scripture. So I was saying that we could be here for quite some time, and we might be, maybe not, I don't know. I think, I think we'll be here for a few weeks at least. But uh, we're going to pray and then get into our text. All right, settle down in the back, children. Children in the back. (laughs) Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we can come and gather uh, together as your people to worship you, Lord God. We thank you, Father, that you are our good and gracious God. You are our creator, our redeemer, our Lord, and our King. And we thank you, Father God, for the mercy and grace that you've given to us, that you have brought us up to Mount Zion, the holy mountain, Father. We might enter into the heavenlies to worship you, Lord, to meet with you, to dine with you. We thank you for these great privileges that we have, Father. And we we pray as we begin to look into your word, and as we seek to study um, your word, Father, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, Lord, that we might see and understand, Lord, how it is that you've set this world up, what it is that you want us to learn from this world, how we can better serve and honor you. Our first and primary function as your image bears, is worship, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that you sought a people to worship you. And we are among them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, let's begin by reading our section. This is Micah 4. We'll begin at verse 1 and we'll go down to verse 5. Okay? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, 
and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nathan, nation? Nathan. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right. So that's the section. This is a great new covenant promise that we have from God. It's so great and so lofty and so set that God quotes it twice, that that this promise happens twice. If we go backwards a little bit to the book of Isaiah, we'll find something very, very similar. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll read the beginning of that. Verses 1 to 5, the same as Micah 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. See? They're almost verbatim, right? Yeah. So God repeats himself. We should probably take note, right? He sent two prophets who prophesied at the same time, prophesying the same message, right? I'm sure that happened quite a bit in ancient Israel, but we have it here written down for us, right? So if I was to ask you, as we were reading this, remember the questions that we ask as we read Scripture? What does this remind you of? As you read Micah 4, 1 to 5, you should be like, oh, that sounds just like Isaiah 2, 1 to 5, right? Because <laughs> very, very seldom, at least, do we get this kind of uh, restatement of a prophecy. I mean, it's very common for a New Testament writer to quote Old Testament authors, right? But very rarely do we have two contemporaneous prophets prophesy the same thing at the same time, right? So, clearly, it is significant. And we'll go through some of the significance of this. Now, we should deal with the beginning, the opening of this, because this is kind of important, I suppose. Um, It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, in modern America, in modern churches, whenever we see this expression, latter days, for some reason we like to think that it's latter to our day, right? We push it off 
to the distant, distant future. Okay? But remember, Isaiah and Micah prophesied the same time, around the same time as the founding of the city of Rome. Right? This is around 700 BC. And this is a long, long, long time ago. Right? Um, well before Christ, well before our day. You know, this is what, nearly almost 3,000 years ago, like 2,700 years ago or so, roughly. Um, it's a long time, right? Multi millennia. But what did they mean when they said, it shall come to pass in the latter days? Well, what days were these people? that he was prophesying to, looking for? What were they looking forward to? What were they believing in? What did they think was going to happen? Who can answer that question? Yes, they were waiting for the coming Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to usher in what they would consider um, the Messianic age, an age of prosperity for Israel, an age of, well, when domination returned to Israel. And that's what's being prophesied here, isn't it? And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Right? So that's what they were looking forward to. Now, when, when Christ came, did this occur? Did the mountain of the house of the Lord be established as the highest mountain? And some people say, no, of course not. How could it have possibly? Israel's didn't even exist. They were destroyed by the Romans and then on and on and they got reestablished in 19 whatever, 40 something and now, you know, they're just some little nation in the Middle East. They have no world domination yet and you know, God promised them that and all this other stuff. But that's not really what's being prophesied here or anywhere else in the New Testament. It's not concerning the nation of Israel. It's concerning the true Israel, and in this case, the mountain of the house of the Lord. So, what we need to understand is, what are mountains? What are mountains? What do they represent? What do they signify? What are they? What's the stuff of mountains? Authorities, powers. Yeah, they are authorities and powers. What's that? Economies. Economies, yeah. Yeah, because economy, in the proper sense... Not just the um, Not financial sense, right? Yeah, thank you. Is uh, <clears throat> house rule, right? The rule of a home, the rule of a group. So, yes, it does deal with that. It does deal with authority. But why? Why does mount? Why are mountains? What do? Why do they deal with authority? What? What are they though? Like, what is? What is the stuff of? It is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's the dwelling place of, of the gods, right? I mean, the Greeks, where did the gods dwell? Mount Olympus, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Baal, Baal, however you want to pronounce it, Baal, he dwelt on Mount Zephon, right? Far in the north of Palestine. El dwelt on another mountain, the mountain of El, um, Marduk, I can't remember the mountain that Marduk dwelt on, actually, off the top, but I didn't write it down. 
But uh, yes, it was. It was the dwelling place of the gods. But why? Why was it the dwelling place of the gods? Why did the gods choose mountains to dwell? What? Yeah, mountains are high. That's right. <laughs> yeah, mountains stretch up. They reach up into the heavens. Very good. And what's, what else do they do? What else do mountains do? Yep, you can. You can look out over the people you can you reign over if you're up on the top of the mountains. That's absolutely the case. But what else do mountains do? They reach up into the heavens. What else do they do? Yeah, they are immovable. But they meet the earth, don't they? They're not just clouds. The gods don't dwell on clouds. Right? They dwell on mountains. Mountains are, as you said, immovable. Clouds do move. Clouds are also lofty, though. Right? But they reach down and stretch and touch the earth, right? But they do one other thing, don't they, in regards to just their structure? Their roots go down into the nether regions. Go ahead, Jerry. I was just going to say that they're reminiscent of the tabernacle. Yeah, they are reminiscent of the temple and tabernacle. And why do you think that is? We'll get into that in just a second. But, um, yeah, so they reach up into the heavens. They meet the earth. And their roots reach down into the underworld, into the nether regions, right? Remember, we talked about that triple-decker vision of the world. You had the heavens, the earth, and, well, the waters under the earth. Do you know what that means, the waters under the earth? You've heard that expression, obviously. You've read that multiple times. Why do you think he says waters under the earth? What do you think that means? You ever think about that? Yeah, yeah, they did. They actually did burst up through, right? The uh, the springs under the earth, under the earth like burst forth, right? That did that did occur, absolutely. But then when you go back to creation and you're talking about the forming of the land, um, you're talking about the uh, when, when you look at it metaphorically, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about uh, the land being stable, the land being Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's that separation. Right, but, but why are the seas under the earth, not just lapping at the shores? Well, again, guessing. Yeah. Uh, the, the ranking. The ranking? Yeah. Oh, the order of, yeah. of uh, being, I guess, yeah. the chain of being in terms of creation. Like rocks are a lesser being than uh, people would be. Right? Or, and the rays of the sun would be the highest form of being uh, in, in that sense. I suppose so. That's that's that that's part of it. I, I suppose I have to I have to really flesh that out a, a little bit more because no 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 it probably does not you know um, I mean they what they understood that the heavenly objects right the the spheres in the sky or the highest form of being in the created order. Spirits are the highest form of being. God, the gods, 
being um, chief, right? And then we are lesser beings than they, you know, because we have physical bodies and everything else. But, um, yeah, and they would understand that we are higher than grasshoppers. Grasshoppers are higher than rocks. That, that is an understanding that they had in terms of that. But um, they actually believed, believe it or not, that there was a sea under the earth. That wall, I mean, you dig a hole and there is water, right? In a well, you know. So they, they did believe that the, the, their, their uh, cosmology was such that they had the earth sitting on top of a sea, the waters under the earth. Those were the nether regions. Right? Those were places where the spirits, the evil spirits, the dead and everything else went and dwelt. I mean, how did you get into the land of the dead in the Greek tradition? You had to cross some kind of river, didn't you? That there were waters that existed under the earth. So that's what they had an, as an understanding. But we're talking about mountains. You can talk about the, the netherworld later. The mountains, do, their roots reach into the netherworld. And what else does this? Does anything else, does this sound similar to anything else? Icebergs, sure, but would they have an understanding of icebergs? I mean, I meant, um, I meant in, in, in this, in this, in this, uh, in this world, in, in the world of the Bible and the cosmology of Scripture, do they have an uh, what reaches into the earth? Yeah, trees, right? Trees reach into the earth. They stretch. They, you know, they come from the ground. They stretch up and reach into the heavens, right? Trees also do this, right? And we see the gods being associated with trees quite frequently as well. I mean, in the ancient Assyrian um, cult, the king of Assyria, who was the chief among the people, obviously, he was the highest of the people, he was the one closest to the gods. His seat, his throne, was placed at the base of a great tree. And that tree was a place where heaven and earth met, was a place where the gods met with men. So that's the understanding that they had as well. And where did Abraham meet the Lord? Right At the trees, at the oaks of Mamre. Yeah, the, 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 this is also significant. This also occurs as well. So, mountains are the meeting place of earth and heaven and the netherworld. Right? It, it touches all aspects of creation. So the mountains are very significant spiritually to the ancient peoples. Who knows where the first mountain is mentioned in Scripture? If you had to, if you had to think back. What? Huh? Abraham. Abraham. There's one before then. Mount Ararat with uh, Noah. The no, not Genesis one. You're close, though. That's two. <laughs> yeah, Genesis 2. Right, yeah. Believe it or not, Eden was on a mountain. Here, let's read a little bit about this. Let's go to 2, verse 8. And we'll read about Eden, and then, we'll, then, I'll, then I'll prove this to you from another place, just so you know we're clear. Okay, 2, 8. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, where he put the man 
whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Now this is the important part in terms of our study. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and and, uh, became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole of the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and Onyx Stone are there. The second, uh, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. All right. So, there is this place called Eden. God plants a garden eastward in Eden. And out of Eden flow these rivers. How do rivers flow? Down. And then this, these four rivers flow and, and reach out and water the four corners of the earth. They stretch out and water the rest of creation. Right? Yes, Maria. Yeah, we do mine stone there. Yeah, that's another good indicator that these are mountains. And, yeah, let's go one other place, and you'll see, Maria, exactly where we're talking about. All right, let's turn to Ezekiel 28. And we'll read two verses out there about the fall of Satan, kind of. It's a lament over the king of Tyre. Two, uh, I said two, I'm sorry, 28. Uh, Ezekiel 28. Starting at verse, uh, let's start at verse 12. Might as well get a little context. Son of man, that's an, an, an I'm going to get off topic. No. Son of man, uh, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, see, Eden, right? The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. Now, this is the important verse for us. I placed you, um, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked, etc. So, he was in Eden, on the holy mountain of God, right? So, Eden was a high and lofty place. It was the mountain of God. It was God's mountain. Now, that makes sense. If we think about, as you said, Jerry, the temple and tabernacle, doesn't it? Because they were recreations of the original created order, right? They have heavy Edenic imagery, right? All the carvings and trees and cherubs and everything else that exist in there, in the uh, temple and in the um, tabernacle. 
It was a recreation of the Garden of God. Because what was the Garden of God originally? Yeah, it was a temple. It was a place where God made man to dwell, to work, to tend, to keep. And that's what he says to the priests. That's their task in the temple, right? Adam was created as a priest there to serve the Lord in his temple. I mean, every temple needs the image of its God, right? And so God put his image in the temple, in his temple. Right? And that image being Adam and Eve. So that's what occurred then, and now there was a fall, and so God had to recreate his world, and he did. And he did it choosing the people of Israel, choosing Abraham and, and Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, to recreate this holy mountain, this Eden again. And it, that was done symbolically in the form of the temple and tabernacle. As a matter of fact, the stones named here, every precious stone was your covering, who, who does that remind you of? Where have you heard something like that before? Who has precious stones as their covering? The priest's garments, that's right. Yeah, their breastplate had all these precious stones. It was their covering, wasn't it? See, so Satan was created, or what? Go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, go ahead, sure, Maria. I'm sorry. Can you repeat what you said? Well, with the commandments, uh-huh. to like reinforces or emphasizes the fall because there's a literal defense. Yeah. And it makes like the Tower of Babel much more nefarious in terms of like mankind trying to build his way up to God by his own efforts, and kind of interpreted as like synonymous with works based salvation. And then when you think also about God and writing Moses to meet with him on the mountain, it reminds me of Proverbs 25. When um, it's better to be asked by a king to move closer to him than to sit closer. I don't know exactly what. Um, hold on. Proverbs 25 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence, for stand in the place of the great place that is cold. Come up here, then he will be put lower in the presence of the noble. Yeah. Yep, that's true. It is. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. It is better to be asked by the king to come for, forward. Like that's the significance of Moses meeting God. Come up. Yeah. There's a lot of... Yes. Yeah, because... All right, that's, that's a good... Uh, let's see here. How can we turn... All right, God is a king, obviously. And the temple, the word is palace, right? Is house, the house of the Lord. That's what the word is. David lived in a house. God lived in a house. Right? Solomon built his house. He built God's house. Same word. They're not different words. The servants of Solomon were called Kohen, priests. The servants of God are called Kohen, priests, household servants. That's what they were. Right? Yes. So that signification is important in that understanding. Yes, all these things should remind you. So when you think of up-down language, sure, it makes it visual for us. Mountains do make it visual for us. You know, um, so I said before, I believe I did, uh, hearing coming from somebody else, they, had a, they made an excellent point saying that when we think of stars, you know, un- unfortunately as moderns generally, I mean, we kind of still have this, the same way we say sunset. You know, if I asked you where the stars are, most people go 
that way, right? But, you know, stars are all around us. You know, we do live on a ball, as it were. But think always in terms of up and down, you know? Think in terms of the vertical. When we think in terms of just, you know, we're on this ball, the sun's wherever the sun is right now, uh, they're over there somewhere, and we're just rotating around it and everything else. You know, we're still thinking horizontally. We're still thinking uh, materially, naturalistically. And that's, that's a problem because these things have uh, a spiritual significance, uh, something that reaches beyond itself into the vertical. Now, what's really sad, and I've noticed this talking with uh, people, talking with other people, is when we talk about, oh, this has a spiritual significance, they think that, okay, so it doesn't have a real significance, you know? It's just spiritually this or spiritually that, you know? Like, uh, here, I'll give you an example. I don't want to offend too many people, but I know I will, unfortunately. But most of our all-millennials, brethren, right? If you read a passage like we read in, that we're going through now, that the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the highest of the mountains, etc. You say, oh, that, that's not actually going to happen. That just has a spiritual significance. Like there's a difference between something that's actually going to occur and something spiritual. What is more actual, the spiritual or the physical? When I say actual, I mean that in the philosophical sense, the metaphysical sense. The spiritual, the spiritual is always primary, it comes first, because God is spirit, right? <laughs> you know, and from the things that are invisible, God created the things that are visible, right? The invisible things are primary, they have, they're more real, as we were talking about before, than the physical world itself. They're the things that give this world meaning, you know? We think in terms of what we can see, what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can feel. It says Jesus rules and reigns, but I don't see him ruling and reigning, right? Have you read the newspaper? Things are getting really weird and really bad, right? That's what they say. That's what a lot of people say. That's how we all feel sometimes, right? But what's more real? What we see with our eyes or what we perceive? with the eyes of faith, you know? That's the question. By faith we understand, we're told. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. What is faith? Faith is a belief in the things you can't see, we're told, right? Why? The things we can't see are more real than the things we can. What did Jesus look like hanging on that cross? A broken, beggar, of a man in some in insignificant backwater in some in insignificant country crucified by the Romans. And that was all he looked like. Surrounded by thieves, right? But spiritually, what was going on? What is more real? Right? Yeah. Right, we see by faith. We see dimly because we don't understand. Right. We just, we don't. What, is it, what does it mean 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the chief of the mountains? What's that going to look like? You know, we don't know. We don't see. We see through glass darkly. We see dimly now. Yes. Now, are these things visible yet in, in every way? No. No, they are not. But what moves what? The spiritual moves the physical, right? The spirit moves your body, no? Right? Your, can you see your will? Can you see your soul? If I think about raising my hand, can I see that? I don't know. No, you can't. I don't know even how to express that. Can I see my will to do that? No. No one can. What moves what? So, let's look more about, let's think more about mountains. Getting off topic again. My goodness, I can't even get through mountains. What's that? Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's, it's important. Okay. So, mountains in ancient pagan cultures. All right, this is fun. In the ancient Near East cultures, like the Canaanites culture, you know, the Canaanite culture, the Mesopotamian culture, that's Babylon, even the Egyptian culture, um, the Greek culture, right? Mountains. Uh, now, now this, is, this is actually kind of important here because this is what Jerry was talking about. Uh, mountains grew up out of this sea of chaos, and from this uh, mountain, all creation was formed. And on this mountain is where the gods hold counsel and decide the ordering of the world. On a mountain, the god Baal, the Mount Mount Zaphon, in the far north, that's important, of Palestine. Um, Baal slew Yom and Lotan, the chaos dragon. Yom, if you remember our study uh, before in Kings, Yom was the god of the seas, of chaos. He was the god of chaos, of that primordial chaos. And Baal slew him and his chaos dragon, his minion, Lotan, on this mountain. And from there he called Anat, Anat, however you pronounce it, his sister and consort to put on the face of the fertility goddess and come to him on this mountain. And from there, they make the rest of the world fertile and bring harmony to the world. He has many banquets and feasts on his mountain up there at Zaphon. Um, this is where the rest of creation is ruled over by the gods. Baal being the chief of the gods in Canaanite culture. That's what they understood. Yes. Uh, so as everyone said that, yes, the mountains were the places where the gods dwelt and ruled over their creation and conquered chaos, etc. Those things are very important in these cultures. This parallels the Greek account of Zeus and Typhon. They did battle by... I think, what is it? I don't know. Herodotus said they did battle on Mount Olympus. Someone else, I wish I could remember names, said it wasn't on Olympus. It was on the mountain in Syria, Cassiosis. But either way, they did battle on a mountain, and Zeus from his height threw down thunderbolts and wrestled this great serpent-like creature who was the son of of Gaia, 
Gaia being the Earth, right? Uh, anyways, you go on. And Zeus defeats Typhon and establishes order there. In the Mesopotamian culture, Marduk defeated Tiamat and his minion. Well, I can't remember the name of his minion right now. doesn't matter. Another chaos serpent um, on a mountain as well. Tiamat being the god of disorder and chaos again. So these gods established the order of creation from their mountain dwellings where they feast and hold councils. Now, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? That should actually remind us of some things. All right. Can we think of anything similar to that? Like gods, the gods meeting and feasting and holding councils and establishing uh, the ordering of their creation. Well, it's not their creation. They didn't create it, but of creation. Um, does that sound familiar at all? Uh, okay. Uh, the gods meeting and feasting and... Uh, holding councils and establishing the ordering of creation. Olympus? Yeah, that happened on Olympus. But I'm asking, like, is, that yeah, that that was common. We mentioned the Greeks uh, very specifically. Zeus, you know, defeating Typhon, and then yeah, that did happen. But I mean, scripturally, does that remind us of anything? Psalm two. Psalm two. Feasting, there's feasting, and holding councils together. But those are the, the those are the people that's on the earth. I'm talking about the gods in the heavens. No, here, turn with me to Exodus 24. We'll read a section of this. Man, oh man, I really need to go faster. I like mountains a lot, though. <laughs> huh? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. The children, not the children of Israel on the golden calf. Let's read 24. We'll start at verse 1. I'm sure I hope I wrote this down correctly. Um, yeah, this is the one I want. All right. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near uh, to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. Now, where was this occurring? Who remembers where this was? Mount Sinai, right? This was on the holy mountain of Sinai. So that's important. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the rules, you know, that ordering of creation. Because remember, what was God doing was when he was establishing Israel as a people? He was recreating the world. He was restructuring it, right? So, and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings uh, to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, and we're going to skip ahead a little bit, 
Let's go down to verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. Where'd they go? They went up, up the mountain, uh, and saw, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. What color are sapphires? Blue. (laughs) A pavement of sapphires was under him. What picture in your head do you get? The sky. God standing on that great sky dome, right? That blue sky dome that we have in our created order. And God is standing on it, looking at them, right? Uh, Like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men, uh, on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and what did they do? They ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, "Come up, uh, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction." Right. So we see something similar, don't we? We see something happening very similar. But and we, we could talk about the council of the gods that we see in uh, kings and other places where God holds counsel with the gods, right? With the, with the angels, I suppose. Um, but he holds counsel with men as well. Those were called prophets. Moses was a prophet, right? They got to sit in God's council and God would ask them, should I do this? And they would say, like Amos said, oh no, Lord, how could Jacob stand? He is so small, right? Then God says, no, then I won't do that. I'll do this instead. Oh no, Lord, right? How many times did God say, I'm going to destroy all of the people of Israel and start over with you, Moses? And what did Moses do? Moses said, oh no, Lord, don't do that, right? So the prophets get to sit in, in the council of God. But um, chiefly, at this point in history, this task was given to the gods, the angelic beings, the spirit beings. So, oh man. Yeah, we're not going to get through this. It's already time to close, unfortunately. All right, so we'll finish our talk about mountains next week, hopefully. And then we'll look at some other things. I hope this was interesting to you. It's very interesting to me. I love mountains, like I said. Um, they are very significant in Scripture. God seems to love mountains, too. He talks about them quite a bit, more than you might think. Uh, so, any thoughts, comments, or questions before we close? Michael? No. No, trees are not to people as mountains are to gods. No, no. I would say that trees are to mountains are to people as mountains are to trees and to people. <laughs> They're the, they, they symbolize each other. Substantially, they represent one another. I mean, where does God dwell? Where does he dwell now? In his people. 
in his temple. Right? All, and what are we called? We are called trees, yes. But what are we also called? We're called Mount Zion. Right? Where have we come today? To Mount Zion, the holy mountain. To do what? To meet with God. Right? That's what the author to the Hebrew says. Is that the building that we've come to? No, it's the meeting place of the people of God. The people of God are his temple. Right? His dwelling place. Okay? So people are mountains as well. Go ahead. Four, one to five. Yeah. Um, another thing real quick that's important that I probably should have touched on just a little bit more to make that point clear, that people are mountains, right? Mountains are people like mountains. People are like mountains. I was trying to say people are mountains. People are like mountains. Um, but I've known some mountains of people. But um, they reach into the heavens, right? They come up from the earth. Does that sound like a man? That's what makes trees significant. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We have a heavenly aspect to us, don't we? God himself breathed into us, and we became a living soul, right? We come up from the earth. We have, I don't want to say, this is going to sound weird, but I don't mean this in any heretical fashion. We have a part of the divine in terms of the spiritual aspect. And we are of the earth, right? We are the meeting place of heaven and earth. Trees are the meeting place, symbolically, of heaven and earth. Mountains are the meeting place, of, symbolically, of the heavens and the earth. That they can be used by God as symbols for mankind, in that sense. Temples, right, are the meeting place of heaven and earth. Temples, where, did, where was God worshipped quite frequently? Where were all the gods worshipped? And God was very angry with Israel for not taking them away. The high places, right? Yes, they were called the high places for a reason. <laughs> they were up on hills and on mountains and the like. Um, okay, anyways, we had a close, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you, Lord that you have built this world in such a way that we can learn about you from it, Lord. We can learn about ourselves from it, Father. And more than that, you've given us your spirit and you've given us uh, your word so that we might understand it, Father. It's without your word and without your spirit, we would be utterly lost in this world, Father God. And we thank you, Father, that you have not left us without a witness. You have not left us as orphans, but you have sent your spirit, Father. And through your spirit, you've united us one to each other and one to yourself, Lord. We give you all praise and thanks. And we pray, Father, that we would worship you today with one voice, with one heart, and with one soul, and with one mind, Lord, that you would be magnified and exalted as you ought to be, that you would be glorified and honored 
And let us all think, Father, about coming up to meet you in your mountain, Lord, on your mountain, um, in the heavenly places, because that's where you've called us, Father. That's where you've called us today. And we thank you, Lord, for that, that great and awesome privilege. And we, like the elders of Israel, get to dine with our God on the very body and blood of Christ, the one who saved us. How awesome that is. Lord, we pray that we could come, that we would come before you with clean hands and a pure heart, that our worship would be acceptable to you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.